Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and how we can apply it to our lives. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about a really cool resource that we're giving away with this series. We understand that spiritual growth can be really hard, and I personally get that even when you leave having heard one of my sermons with the best intentions to apply it to your life, turning those best intentions into real-life actions can be pretty difficult. And so with this series, we're giving away devotional sheets. These devotional sheets contain daily activities that will take about 10 minutes for you to complete. The activities are varied from day to day. One day has a devotional writing written by me, another has questions, another has guided prayer, and there's a few other things too. I really do think that these devotional sheets will help you to immerse yourself more fully in the passages of scripture that I'm preaching on in this series, and I hope that you will get a copy. You can get a copy by visiting one of our services, or for you online listeners, you can get one by going to wilsonville.church slash SOTM. That's wilsonville.church slash SOTM. The SOTM stands for Sermon on the Mount. Hey, again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So Leo Tolstoy, who wrote War and Peace, famous novelist, um, it was said uh, about him, his literal interpretation of the ethical teachings of Jesus centering on the Sermon on the Mount caused him to become a fervent Christian anarchist, kind of a funny title, and pacifist. And uh, we know through history that his work had a profound impact on Gandhi, who I've mentioned a lot in this sermon series, and Martin Luther King. And it is the passage we look at today that specifically impacted Leo Tolstoy and the writings that he would write after becoming a Christian anarchist. Um, And what's interesting about this passage is it calls us to something that seems so high and and so difficult. Uh, We think about forgiveness, right? And forgiveness is kind of a hard thing to define, a hard thing to describe. And I have defined forgiveness in the past as simply a removal of punishment. Like if you're going to give somebody the silent treatment, you don't. If you're going to yell at them, you don't. If you're going to hold a grudge and and think that it's going to bother them, you just try not to. And I felt really good. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you felt really good when you've been able to forgive people, especially when it's a big wrong, something that, that was really difficult to overcome, something that maybe still has a negative impact on your life, but you forgave. It feels good. But what Jesus does in this passage is he calls us to something even greater. This passage that we'll look at today is about responding to wrong. How do we respond to wrong? When we are wronged, when somebody hurts us, when somebody does something mean to us, when somebody uh, does something that has a, a negative impact on our life that causes consequences for us, and it's not because of us, it's not because of anything we've done, it's not because we deserved it. How do we respond to that? What do we do And we live in a time, not unlike the time that Jesus spoke into, when when revenge seems to be the answer. Now, we don't call it revenge. We call it, you know, public outrage or whatever. And uh, and, and you, you know this, right? Like, if somebody has wronged somebody, and then all of a sudden, 
they have a platform, the person that's been wronged, then what do they do? They just drag that person through the mud. It, it is the goal to end the, uh, the person's career, to tear them down, to slander them, to make them look bad, to let everybody know, look what happened to me. Can you believe this person did it? And, and we see people, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but we see people lose jobs. We see people hurt because, because somebody said, look, you did this to me. And the way I'm going to get back at you is to let everybody know about it. And, and I don't know the answer for our culture and when we should, you know, publicly shame each other and whatnot. Uh, but this is not the answer for Christians and it's not the answer that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls us to something bigger and different and hard. And that's what we're going to look at today. I, I think that our world needs these words. Uh, I mean, we look at the impact of, of Gandhi, uh, who I'm not a huge fan of, and so I, I'm hesitant to say that, but we look at, a, at the impact of Gandhi and, and somebody I am a fan of. We look at the impact of, of Martin Luther King and, and what he did for this country in the civil rights movement, and, and we might just want to say, like, why? And I think in this passage, or how, in, in this passage, we, we really learn the answer, the why and the how. He looked at Jesus' words, said, that's a really good idea. I'm going to try to practice it. Even Gandhi, not a Christian, looked at Jesus' words and said, well, I'm going to try to live that out. Uh, my dad told me something a while back that was really interesting. Um, he uh, was a teacher. Now he's what they call a behavioral specialist. And he said in the early days of most of his teaching career that uh, when there were interpersonal problems in the school that that it would go away once you got to a holiday break. Like as a teacher, he would think, okay, these kids hate each other. They're on the verge of getting in a fight. But if we can just make it to Thanksgiving, they'll go away for a few days. Everything will be okay. If we can just get to Christmas, everything will be okay. And he told me a few years ago that because of the rise of social media, it actually gets worse during breaks. And so you, you come to Thanksgiving and you are worried about what you'll come back to because, because kids will bully each other online. They'll, they'll raise things, right? It will get worse. And, and, and before I begin, I, I, would just, I would just say that I think social media has really played a role in, in us becoming a nation of vengeance. I mean, we think of like the dark ages, right? When we think of vengeance, like, or, or the wild, wild west, when it was like, you wronged me, I'm gonna shoot you, you know, or you wronged me, I'm gonna stab you if you go back to the Middle Ages, uh, and, uh, or worse than the Middle Ages. I don't even know what, I don't even wanna imagine, but I'm gonna do something really terrible to you. I'm gonna hit you with a giant rock out of this slingshot or something like that. And we think like we've kind of moved past that. We've become, I don't know, more dignified than revenge. But social media, I mean, just, just read the comment section of any social media platform. And it is, you say something I don't like about me or my people or my party or my group. And I'm going to say something equally or greater uh, negative uh, towards you because you have said that thing to me. And so even like, I mean, I, I know that you guys are not major social influencers, uh, but, but even on our, our small level, whether it be social media or in our families or just life, we've embraced in very sad ways revenge under different names, you know, standing up for ourselves or whatever, but we've embraced revenge. And I think it's important that we hear what Jesus has to say 
in this passage. In Matthew 5, 38, we read, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So we're in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to finish this section next week and, and we'll move on from the Sermon on the Mount, talk about Jesus as the Messiah. But we're in this section that theologians have called the antithesis section where Jesus says, you've heard this thing said, but I tell you. And, and he's not saying like, hey, this wasn't actually said. In fact, eye for eye and tooth for tooth is a direct quote in the Old Testament passed down from God, right? He's saying, look, you've heard the wrong interpretation of this thing that God declared. You have, heard, you have heard people teach it and preach it in the wrong way. And when it comes to this, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, we have this direct quote that was meant to be a national law for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. Much of what we read in the Old Testament, especially the first five books, are really God saying, hey, I'm creating a nation here and a nation needs rules. And what's so interesting about the Old Testament is, is the law section, the first five books, was written at a time when humanity in general was trying to figure out what law looked like. Like what, what should a nation force in their country? What, what should a people group regulate? I mean, what, what is law and, and what types of laws would be good? And, and the Jewish people, they saw it as a, a real privilege. It's one of the defining things for them that they didn't just, you know, try to figure it out through social studies or, or trying to, you know, put it together over time. God said, here's what your law is going to be. And sometimes we look at the laws as, you know, like this burden and it became that for the Jewish people. But in the early days, they're like, Wow, you're all trying to figure out what kind of laws you should have, and our God gave us our laws. But what had happened with the Jewish people is they had taken this national law, this, this idea of exact retribution. If somebody takes your eye and pokes it out, then the punishment for that should be, or at least can be, up to you take their eye too. The judge says their eye, that's the punishment, we're going to take their eye. It's interesting that, that by the time Jesus lived, most of the time it wasn't an eye for an eye, it was an eye for some amount of money that seemed to make up for your eye, similar to what we have today in lawsuits, right? But what's also interesting is, is that this law was not usually practiced, nor was it commanded in order to say it must be this much. There must be exact retribution for people. It, it was meant to say this is how far you can go in punishing somebody for the wrong that they have committed. But the Jewish people had taken it and said, look, let's apply this to our personal lives. Let's not just make it a national law, but let's say, oh, God has allowed for, he, he has commanded, he's shown us that revenge is going to be okay. And, and what's interesting about that and, and the reason for it, it makes sense. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus were living in a time where their rights had been taken away. They were living under the oppression, under the, uh, the flag of the Roman Empire. And basically, Roman soldiers, Roman government officials, they could just basically tell Jews that they had to do this or they had to do that. It was up to them. Their rights had been taken away. And so if a Jew, and, and this is really, I think, in large part what Jesus is speaking into, if a Jew 
was wronged by a Roman soldier, there was no way they were getting justice through the judicial system. And we know, right, we, and we feel, if there is no organizational punishment for a person, if there is no way for me to see justice served in their lives through going to an authority, that's when we want revenge, right? If we know we can call the police and they're going to get arrested and they're going to go to jail, then we're, we're good with that, right? But when a family member does something that we don't like and there's no law against it, that's when we want to take matters into our own hands. That's when we want to publicly shame them or at least talk behind their backs. That's when we want to do something that, that hurts them. Because we can't look to a, a greater, more authoritative figure and say, hey, look what happened to me. I say all that, I set all that up because I think we feel that, right? When we don't think somebody else has our best interest in mind, when we don't think that a person is going to face punishment for the way in which they have hurt us, then we look for sometimes small ways, sometimes big ways to hurt them back. It's natural. It's not godly, but it's natural. And so these Jewish people at the time of of Jesus giving this sermon they're looking around and they're going, we don't really have rights anymore. When somebody wrongs us, especially if they're a Roman, there's nothing we can do about it. And even in our own, our own kind of country, our own city of Jerusalem, I mean, we are looking to a, another power that doesn't have our best interest in mind, even when we're, we're trying to, you know, have our own justice. It's like, we, we got to look to them and say, is this okay? Is this too far? Are we allowed to do this? And so they were looking for ways... They were looking for ways to get back at the people who were wronging them. But here's the thing. Personal revenge has always been frowned upon by God. He's never liked personal revenge. He's always been for justice. He's always been good with a nation, uh, doing what they need to do to keep order. It's funny that Tolstoy, based on this passage, became an anarchist because that was never intended by God, but God has always been against personal revenge. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. Proverbs 24, 29 says something very similar, but in Leviticus 19, 18, we see this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. This law was was meant to be a national law, but it was also meant to be a law that said you cannot go further than they went in hurting you. Because oftentimes we know this, right? Like revenge is not equal. We want to bring revenge back with something worse. That's just how it goes a lot of times. This is why why things escalate, right? I mean, somebody says something mean and then you say something meaner and then somebody says something meaner and then somebody says something meaner and eventually you're, you're actually fighting or somebody ends up dead or, you know, these things escalate. And, and God was not saying, go get personal revenge. He was saying, here's a national law to make sure that things don't escalate and that there's justice. So Jesus says, this is what you've heard, this, this wrong interpretation of this law and then in verse 39 he says this this is is a better this is the real interpretation but i tell you this is hard do not resist an evil 
person. Do not resist an evil person. Now, look, when we hear don't resist, if you're anything like me in studying for this sermon, um, you just immediately want to figure out what it doesn't mean, right? Like, like, wait, can I defend myself if somebody breaks into my home, right? I mean, that's a big question. Does this mean that there is no such thing as a just war? I mean, should I ever think that we should go into war or, or even as a country, should we just, you know, whatever, whatever somebody else does to us, like we just take that and, and we don't resist. I mean, it, it leads to this. Should I be a pacifist like Tolstoy? Should I, should I not engage in war ever? Should I never be okay with defending or fighting or anything like that? I mean, here's another one, and this is what the fear is even when preaching this. Like, we could hear it wrong, and, and I mean, wait, if somebody's abused in, in their marriage or in their relationship, should they just stay should they just keep going back to the person? Is that what Jesus is talking about here? And, and the answer to all these things is, frankly, it's, it's no, it's not. Jesus isn't talking about any of those things. It's not what Jesus has in mind at all. But, but, but the fear is to embrace it in the wrong way, but the other fear is to simply say, what doesn't it mean, and then not to think about what it actually means. Even as I was preparing, all of, all of what I, a lot of what I was thinking about was like, you need to make sure that they understand that it's not about this, and it's not about this. It is not telling a woman who is abused to go back. It is not saying that we should be against all war. We should never be for war, but, but we shouldn't say that no country should ever go to war. It isn't about being a pacifist. It isn't about being a doormat to those who want to beat us up. It isn't about not defending yourself. It isn't about those things. But it is about something. I said a couple weeks ago uh, when, when Jesus, had, Jesus had used hyperbole that oftentimes when we read uh, hyperbolic statements in, in Scripture, we just want to say, well, that's hyperbole, so I'm, not, I'm just going to ignore it. But here I think there's that same tendency, like, well, Jesus can't mean this, can't mean that, can't mean that, can't mean that, and so we just go past it and never ask, well, what does he mean? What does he actually mean? When he says this. Most translations. King James is different. And, and so maybe that's why some might read this wrong. But most translations including the NIV which I just read. Say do not resist an evil person. I think the, the Net Bible which is a great resource. Google Net Bible. It's, it's really helpful in studying scripture. If you're into that kind of thing. And I hope you are. It, it says here. The articular paneros cannot be translated simply as evil. For then the command would be, do not resist evil. Every instance of this construction in Matthew is most likely personified, referring either to an evildoer or most often the evil one. I think what, what Jesus is getting at here is not that we resist, we don't resist evil. We ought to resist evil. That's a big part of being a Christian, right? It's just taking a stand against 
evil. We should be against evil in our personal lives. We should be against evil in our culture. It would be weird for me to stand up here every week and, and preach sermons where I never said anything about evil, right? And I just said, whatever, if you're evil, you're evil. Good luck, you know? I mean, I'm not going to resist you. I'm not going to stand in your way. Who am I to get in the way of your evil and your sin and all the things that you want to do wrong? In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, in large part, is Jesus taking a stand against some things that were very evil and, in fact, standing against the evil that people were teaching, like take personal revenge. It's important here that we read this right. We do not stand against evil people, but we do stand against evil. I wrote it down this way. We resist evil and persist in loving evil people. That's a little tricky at some points, right? And I don't have the answer on where those lines lie. We, in our democracy, on both sides of of the aisle, we can look at the other side and we can say, wow, they are standing for something evil. And I'm against that evil. But what does that look like in a democracy? To stand against the evil but not stand against the people who are pushing for that evil. That's hard. If somebody breaks into your home and they want to shoot you, that's evil. And I would say we probably have the right to stand against that evil. But does that mean we shoot them? Because then aren't we standing against the evil person? answer shoot him in the leg maybe (laughs) it's hard right we cannot be a doormat for people to just keep committing evil against that's not biblical like hey if you have wronged me if you have beaten me up I'm just going to allow you to keep beating me up because then we're not standing against the evil we're not helping that person remove that evil from their lives Constantly being a victim is not helpful to the person that is victimizing you. But how do we stand against that evil without standing against that person? I don't know. And if you've been at this church before, you know that when I say I don't know, that usually means that I think we should really be in our own personal lives asking the question, what does this look like? We have a tendency in Christian circles to say, I don't know, and so I won't care. But what Jesus says here is really, really important. We resist evil. We know that from other places, not from what Jesus Jesus says here. We resist evil, but we persist in loving evil people. Hi, Hudson. That's my son. And so we have to ask at least what does that look like? And I know what it doesn't look like usually, right? I mean, it doesn't look like the political conversations we're having online. Whether you think that they're part of standing against evil or not, telling people that their ideologies are stupid or that they're idiots or, or even using the language of you all, you know, like you all are terrible and evil and how dare you. That, that's not loving people.
carrying a gun around looking for somebody to shoot, you know, as those Texans do. Uh, I mean, that's not loving people, right? Like this idea that, I, and I, I, there are people that like, if you, if you break into my house, I'm, gonna, I'm just looking to kill you. That shouldn't be our attitude. Oh, I mean, even on a, like a, on a bigger, grander scale, like, it's horrible. Like, somebody bombed our nation in, in 2001, I mean, right? And they, and they blew up the Twin Towers. And, and I know people who, who were just bloodthirsty because of it. It's not that. It's not saying, wow, we, I'm so excited that we're going to kill so many of you people that stand for something I'm against. It's not that. And I think it's really important that we, that we look at these, these two very clear teachings in Scripture that we as Christians should stand against evil. We should be, remember what we saw at the beginning of this sermon series? Salt and light. People who are making the world better. People who are preserving the good in the world. Who are standing against evil. Who are really the only hope that our culture has against evil. But at the same time, we're persistent in loving the people who are committing those evils. We have to ask what that looks like. And in our own personal lives, because you may not care about what it looks like on a cultural level, we need to look at the people that have wronged us. And we need to say, how do I stand against the wrong? Not allow for it to keep happening Not be a doormat that allows for this person to keep doing the same thing over and over because it is evil. But at the same time, persist in loving that person. It's a hard question, but when Jesus teaches it, it means it's worth answering. We resist evil and we persist in loving evil people. Now, so far it's really vague, but Jesus is about to give these examples that help us get a picture of how far he means for us to go in loving people. Because what I do, what maybe you do, I don't know, is, is what we mean by love, what we, what, how we would apply this is, you've wronged me, but, but I'll tell myself that I love you. But we know, don't we, that when Jesus talks about love, that he doesn't doesn't just mean talking about love because I mean his whole reason for existing his whole reason of for being born this this story that we'll talk about over the next you know several weeks once we hit December it, it was this active love like I love you let me show it it's a big part of the Bible telling somebody you love them is I, I mean I think I can have the weight of the Bible behind me when I say this. it's nothing but showing people you love them. That's a big deal. And, and so Jesus says, look, when somebody's committed an evil against you, don't resist them. And then he says, let me, don't resist them, right? Don't resist those people. And let me show you what that means. Let me show you how far this should go. And that's what he says in the rest of the passage. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. That's famous. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Turn the other cheek is is the most 
famous part of this passage. That's just part of like the cultural language still in existence today, right? If somebody's wronged you, I think a non-Christian might say to you, just turn the other cheek. Uh, the slap on the cheek is probably a reference to an insult and not physical harm. And so if you wanted to, to take this and say, look, here, Jesus is being so clear, you can never defend yourself. Uh, it's probably a reference to to an insult, and we know that because of the cheek that the person hits. Um, if they slap you with the back of the hand, then it makes Jesus' metaphor here make more sense. But funny enough, a slap on the back uh, with the back of the hand, an insult, uh, was actually uh, punishable by, by requiring more money as retribution than a, a slap for pain. And so we can see in that culture, I mean, it was like 200 versus 400. If you slap somebody like this, then you owe $200. If you slap somebody like this to publicly shame them, then it was $400. And I think we all, we all feel that a little bit. I mean, uh, physical assaults can be pretty far. But I would take somebody walking up and slapping me just to hurt me way before I would take a person getting on a microphone and publicly shaming me with their words. You know that the old adage, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's hard. That's not really true. Words can hurt us far deeper. And what Jesus has in mind here, I think, is in fact those deep, deep hurts that come from people publicly shaming us. This was common for Roman soldiers to publicly shame these Jewish people who had no rights. You can imagine, right? You're walking around. You're a big, mighty Roman soldier. These people have no no recourse if you wrong them, if you mock them, if you make fun of how they look or how they act or their religion or whatever else. And this was just a common part of it. And, And what Jesus says here is, if somebody does that to you, if they publicly shame you, you stand right in front of them and say, you can do it again. That's hard. We talk about turning the other cheek, but how many of us have the guts to not say something back? And by the way, this takes a lot of guts. Kind of feels like, you know, just being a pushover, but this takes a lot of guts. Jesus doesn't say run away. He says, you stand there and you turn the other one and say, you've insulted me, but I give you the right to do it again if that's what you need to do. He says, if somebody wants your tunic, hand over your coat as well, or your cloak. The tunic was the base garment, a long sleeve robe, similar to a night shirt that a person wore next to their skin, and the cloak was the outer garment. And So if they want your cloak, just give to them the tunic. I mean, it's basically like saying, if somebody take something from you, you hand them something else. And you stand there in that culture to take Jesus' metaphor all the way to the end. You're standing there naked saying, if you need that, then I'll give you this. Even if it causes me incredible shame. Even at a cost to myself, I will give you more than you have taken from me. says go the extra mile military personnel could draw a civilian for official business so a roman soldier if it doesn't matter what you're doing you're working you're doing your job you're hanging out with your family if they needed you for certain things then they had rights just to say you right now you're coming with me you're going to do this they could they could take them as unpaid laborers to construct roads to 
fortify buildings, um, things like that. And, and the Jews, you can imagine, you'd hate this, right? If somebody could just come up to your place of business or when you're hanging out at your house and they say, hey, you're doing construction tonight. That would be super annoying. And if it happened more than once, you'd, you'd really be angry and upset, right? I mean, how dare them? And there was no public recourse, and so people wanted to find revenge. And Jesus says, if they ask you to go one mile, if they ask you to carry their bags for a mile, go with them two miles. Go two. Can you imagine, I mean, just to put ourselves in their shoes, if a foreign government took over the United States and we no longer had our freedoms, we, we had to do what they told us to do. Can you just imagine if somebody walked up to you in the middle of your day, you're doing whatever you're doing, and they say, I need you to carry my bags for a mile? I don't know, it's going to take like 30 minutes, right? I'm just furious. There's no way that I feel like going to, but that's what Jesus calls us to anyone who asks and the the idea here is that they ask with no ability to pay back and in fact this may be a reference to people who are panhandling to use our modern vernacular they are begging for alms uh, this is this is them and and they, and they come up to ask you and, and and jesus says give freely just give give more than they ask for This is what one author said, to give freely to whomever, to whomever seeks assistance, especially to those who may not really need charity and to those from where there's a little chance of repayment is the height of generosity and generosity is at the heart of what Jesus says here. He's saying, and this is so difficult, right? He's saying when somebody has wronged you, you be generous to them. Not you just forgive them, not you try to forget about it, not you move on with your life. You respond with generosity. Uh, this book that I've been using a lot for this series, it's great, man. I'm telling you, go buy it if you are interested in looking into the Sermon on the Mount. Don't buy it until I, I do chapters 6 and 7 of Matthew 5 eventually because you'll have all my material. But, uh, but eventually go buy the message of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about things that, that, I mean, it's not a brand new book, but man, things that just seem so important right now in our society and what we're facing. And all he's doing is talking about uh, what the Sermon on the Mount meant. And, and here's, here's what he says. Our personal relationships are to be based on love, not justice. Our duty to individuals who wrong us is not retaliation, but the acceptance of injustice without revenge or redress. And he goes on to say, the principle is love, the selfless love of a person who, when injured, refuses to satisfy himself by taking revenge, notice this part, but studies instead the highest welfare of the other person and of society and determines his reactions accordingly. That's the principle. We resist evil but persist in loving evil people. And what Jesus means by loving evil people is you look at them and you ask, what is the best thing that I can do for them? Usually that's not going to mean letting them hurt you over and over and over and over again. But the question must be asked, what is best for them? What moves them forward? 
What helps them? This is for us who are Christians. This is the question. What helps them become a Christian? And if they are a Christian, what helps them grow in their relationship with Jesus? What moves them forward in their spiritual journey? What brings the kingdom of heaven down to earth? What moves forward God's glory on this earth? That's the question we ask when faced with injustice, when faced with wrong. How do we respond to wrong? We respond to wrong by asking what the right thing is for the person that has hurt us. And then we do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, make sure, this is talking to a church, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. You're wrong. You say, okay, what do I do that's good for you? Well, what can I do that's good for you? As we think about this, I mean, resist evil and persist in loving evil people. I mean, this is, this is what Jesus did to the infinite degree, right? I mean, as Christians, if you're a Christian, you know the story. If you're not a Christian, it's really important that we have the story, you have the story in your mind because it's really nice for somebody to say, right? Like, oh, that's good for you, Jesus, but prove it. And the story we believe as Christians is that, that God was in heaven and he looked down and he saw that we'd all wronged him. Just over and over and again, we'd just been flippant with his word and we'd been disobedient to him and and we said, hey God, thanks for creating us. Thanks for sustaining us. Thanks for this life we have. I know that you want us to live a certain way, but we don't care. We don't care. I'll do it my way. And man, sometimes we don't think about the cosmic nature of our sin, but we have these regrets, right? We regret certain things. We know they were wrong. We can see how they've hurt certain people, but they hurt God. And the easy plan, the simple plan, even the just plan would have been for God just to blow us up and start over. Have you ever considered that? Like God could have just started over. If he really wanted to deal with this whole people thing and have a relationship with humanity, he could have just started over. But he said, how am I going to respond to this wrong, this cosmic, infinite wrong that I see? He said, I know what I'll do. I'll figure out what is good for them. And he came down in the person of Jesus and he lived sinlessly, never doing wrong, never hurting people, always being for people and against evil. He lived perfectly and sinlessly and at the end of that sinless life he was tortured, he was mocked and then he was nailed to a cross where he died. And even while hanging on the cross, while I would have you know, resisting evil, in fact paying the punishment for all evil. He was hanging on the cross because he wanted to to crush evil. The evil that's in us the evil that exists in the world, even then he looked down and he said, he said this thing. He persisted in loving people even though they were being evil, even though they were evil. He said, Father, forgive them. What an incredible moment of resisting evil and persisting in loving evil people. I'm fighting against the very evil that you're causing, but while I'm doing it, I'm thinking about your benefit and your welfare. 
And he died there and he rose again three days later. And then he looks down at us. Us who, by the way, are, are, if we're not Christians, if you're not a Christian, then you are described, and I hate to tell you this, but you're described still as an enemy of God. But as an enemy of God, I want you to know this, God is looking at you saying, you are acting as my enemy by refusing to accept what I offered you by dying on a cross, but I'm still calling you and drawing you into a relationship with me because I love you so much. I resist the evil you're doing, he's saying, but I'm persisting in loving you, and so come into my family. And this is the story that we believe as Christians. And Jesus is looking at us and saying, now, as my followers, follow me in this. When somebody hurts you, you don't look for revenge. You don't look for how you can get back at them. You don't look to hurt them too. You look at what they need and what will help them and what will draw them into, towards a relationship with God and you do that thing. That's how we respond to wrong. Corey Tinboom, do you know her story? She's this incredible woman who survived the Holocaust and her sister had died in this concentration camp. She was in the concentration camp. If you want to listen to something great, this is just personal recommendation, but uh, the radio theater uh, of The Hiding Place, which is a book she wrote, done by Focus on the Family, is, is like one of the greatest things I've ever listened to. Um, you sh- if you don't know her story, I, it's a great place to start. But uh, she's she's speaking in Munich, Germany, and uh, this after the Holocaust is over, and you may know this story, it gets told a lot in churches, but it's just so worth repeating here. And, and after she's finished telling everybody, Jesus loves you, Jesus forgives you, this guard from the concentration camp that had been horrible to her started to walk up to her. And she says, I, I knew that he wouldn't remember me. I'm just, you know, just one of a thousand people in this concentration camp or whatever. And then in her words, but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And she has this moment where she's literally frozen. I mean, twice the hands come out, right? And And it would be easy. And this is what we do, right? Like, yeah, I can forgive him. But I can't shake his hand. I can't take the extra step. I mean, I'm not going to look for his punishment. If he was, if it was him, you know, going to the death penalty or whatever, I might say, no, please don't kill him. But I, I can't shake his hand. But she thinks about what a hypocrite she would be to to embrace the love and the forgiveness of Jesus and to say, look, I know that you responded to my wrong by, by doing what was best for me and I know how much you've forgiven me and how you hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them and to not forgive this man. And so she put her hand out and then in her words again, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, shoulder raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being. 
bringing tears into my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart, and then she hugged him. And my question for you this morning is, who has wronged you that you can stick your hand out to? That you can not only stick your hand out and give the, the handshake to, but who that has wronged you needs your hug, whether actually or metaphorically? Who is it that has committed an evil against you that needs you to do something so good and so right for them? I mean, I think of like the ex-boyfriend who hurts you and in some way you've been holding that against him and you're like, whether you actually say these words or not, but you just, you harbor something. I mean, how can you, how can you help him? Or the father who scorned you, this is a big one for so many people in our world today and, and I know there's just so many people who are just crushed by the sins of their father, but also by the unforgiveness that they've harbored towards their father. And I don't know how you can feel better about your dad leaving you or hurting you, but, but you can probably do something nice for him. And I know it will be hard and you won't feel good about it even, but you can still do it. And almost all of us have a friend who has betrayed us at some point. And maybe we're not friends with that person anymore. We haven't said a kind thing to them in years or anything to them at all. What can you do to bless them? Or the coworker that deceived you or stole your promotion or whatever it might be and, and you just say little mean things behind his back currently. But what can you do to help him get the next promotion? Move him up the ladder. For some of you, this is your spouse's right and, and, and you think they've wronged you in some ways and you might still be married to them or it might be an ex-spouse, but you're just, you're just holding on and it's the, the cutting little words or the, the unkind things that you do that they don't even know it's a response to that thing that they have done to you, maybe done for years to you, but you have held it against them. How can you bless your wife or your husband? I don't know if this will be helpful to you, but as I thought about resisting evil and persisting in doing good, this analogy just kept coming to me. It's the only way I could, I could summarize it in my head. And so maybe it'll be helpful to you, but just imagine, that, no, maybe don't imagine, but think about this. If somebody killed someone that you loved, how do you respond to that? And, and I think what Jesus would tell you is you testify against them in court and then visit them in prison. And you tell them that God loves them and that you forgive them even though it's hard and you still hurts. You testify against them, but then you visit them in prison. And so how do we answer this question? How do we respond to wrong? We respond to wrong by resisting evil and persisting in loving evil people. Let me pray that you'll find it in you to do it. God, I thank you that you've, you've spoken, I mean, just in the Sermon on the Mount alone, but throughout your word, you've spoken into into everything that we deal with as humans. And Lord, I, it's funny to me that, that we can be so quick to, to say that the Bible is dry or boring. I just think people are reading the wrong parts because it, it speaks into the good and the bad of our lives. And I know, God, that every person that is here and I know that every person who will listen online, this is just common to man, has been hurt by someone. 
And we may be still dealing with that hurt. We may be in the midst of that hurt. We may be uh, in, in a part of life where somebody's currently hurting us. And we're here this morning, God, knowing that, that what they are doing is, is causing problems that we will have to deal with later. And, and I pray, God, that, that as we consider your incredible love and grace, that we would respond in grace, because that's at the heart of this, this whole sermon is grace. We would respond with grace, not looking for revenge, not looking to get back at them, not looking, God, to get even with them, but looking to bless them. Because we believe, God, that you have blessed us even though we have wronged you in the worst ways. I pray, God, for those who aren't Christians, I just, (laughs) I have no idea how I would ever have found it in me to forgive certain people in my life. How I would not just be harboring bitterness that that was tearing me down to God, poisoning my life if it wasn't for knowing and loving you through your gospel. And so I pray that you'd bring people to salvation, God, even as they consider how people have hurt them. Jesus, love you. Thank you for loving me despite me. I pray, God, that that you would use my words this morning to change our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.